Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Anyone in SEO will tell you that Google Search Console is a must for tracking how you're doing. And now you can add another, even better in a lot of ways, tool to your tool belt with the Ahrefs Webmaster Tools. They saw that Google Search Console has a handful of known issues, is fairly limited in its insights, and has basically stripped away some of the most useful features over the years, unfortunately. So they decided to make the Webmaster Tools, a new must-have and completely free tool for website owners. You can sign up for an account completely for free to see how you're doing and what you can do to improve. Check it out at ahrefs.com slash awt. You can find the link in the show notes and get started today. On the show today is Pep Laha. Pep is a conversion rate optimization expert and the founder of CXL, Spiro, and Winter. I wanted to bring him on because he's one of the go-to experts for conversion optimization, having both been in the trenches as well as building the top marketing blog on conversion optimization with CXL.com. He's also a founder and an entrepreneur, having set the vision and driven marketing for each of his companies and then handing over the operations to others. So you'll hear about how great copywriting is the result of strategic messaging, positioning, and our brand identity, when to test and use data versus when to use conviction and intuition, and also how they leverage no-code tools to test hypotheses and validate business pivots. So to start out, did you ever think that you'd be teaching conversion rate optimization and starting businesses for a living? No, not really. You mean as a child or? Yeah, I mean, growing up or even, you know, going to college, like how did what you, what you aspired to do change over time and how, how did it get you to where you are today? Mm-hmm. As a kid, I wanted to become a doctor because my mom was a doctor. And then bef- when I was in the university, I wanted to actually study political science. I was really into politics. I still am, actually. So considering still uh, maybe I should run for the president of Estonia in the future. A lot of people from tech seems to be, seem to be making that jump, you know. If Arnold mm-hmm. could do it, so can I. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I was like in IT, but like, yeah, conversion optimization. I mean, it didn't cross my mind until like right about when I actually did it, like 2011. Hmm. And how did you fall into that? I wanted to start a marketing blog and back in 2011, the world seemed a scary place. So many marketing blogs, Can you, <laughs> 10 years ago, now it seems like a joke, right? But back right. then already there were like a gazillion blogs, you know, Seth Godin had been already blogging for 10 years, I think. And it's, oh, I need to niche down. And so I basically did some SEO research on like which subcategories of marketing don't have too many good blogs. And I noticed that all conversion optimization blogs were kind of like meh, mediocre, and they, you know, essentially, I thought I could do a much better job and become a category leader there, and and I did. Did you do that on the side of your current job, or did you kind of like just go full on, full time into this new blog, and and it took off? It was. I've been self-employed since two thousand and seven, so but by mm. that time, I had already for four years been like self-employed. And I was like a marketing consultant trainer. I was running uh, the biggest marketing blog in Estonia and doing a lot of in-person trainings, you know, like filling rooms with 500 people for two-day seminars, you know, thinking, teaching internet marketing, things like that. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. And then I also read that, so you're sort of like a 
categorize yourself as an entrepreneur. You're very involved in sort of spinning up new projects, mm-hmm. spearheading, you know, I guess a lot of this like, you know, corporate training and workshops and sort of, like you said, the, the blog for, for the company. So when you started CXL, did you ever think that it would become what it is today as sort of like, you know, the the top or the number one, however you want to categorize it, right? Or whatever kind of award you want to take for yourself, you know, CRO blog in the space? No, actually, when I started out, it wasn't, I didn't have any particular vision. It was like, oh, maybe this will work, you know, because I just, I just had a failed SaaS company. I had a SaaS company called Trained, which was kind of like what Teachable is today. And then I was like, it failed because I had no audience and no money. And, and so I wanted to build an audience first. And so CXL is, is an audience first company. It was a, first was a blog, then it was an agency, and then it became many other things. So I think the vision and so on, those evolved much, much later once it had that initial traction that it's, it's going somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to actually, I dug up an old, uh, an old tweet about the failed SaaS startup. And you, know, you mentioned that there's no audience, there's no kind of name recommit, rec- recognition, uh, there's no existing relationship with potential buyers. Could you expand like what, what you meant, like the reason that it failed was because you had no audience. Like what, what does an audience mean to you or what, what was really kind of the underlying thing there that was missing? Well, my website really had no traffic. And <laughs> there was a, I, I was blogging, but you know, blogging is, is a very slow way to build an audience. I mean, I eventually did that with CXL, but it's, it's certainly not pay the bills tomorrow type of a strategy. And uh, I was completely bootstrapped, so I had no way to buy traffic. I had no investors. So really, like, I was shouting in the desert, like, hey, anybody want to see my size company? And so eventually, it was like a zombie company. It, was, it wasn't quite dead. And, like, we had some paying customers, but it wasn't quite alive either. So two years after doing you know, running a zombie company was like, yeah, I think I can do something better with my time. Hmm. So it was, it was painful to kill a company that, you know, that was not quite dead. And so audience first, so next company around, next, so when I started CXL, I was focused on A, building traffic, B, building name recognition for myself, and building an email list. So from day one, I optimized the site for capturing emails. And I, my first blog posts that I wrote were designed to go viral. I mean, you can't really design for it, but like it worked. Like two, my two first post, blog posts kind of went viral because I wrote them for a specific community, Hacker News. Mm. And, and then once those posts went viral, captured a bunch of emails, I mean, the rest of history. Like it, it was a very fast success. It was very nourishing for my soul. So two years of having no success whatsoever and then having really, really fast success. It felt good. Yeah, yeah. And then CXL eventually you sort of spun out, or I guess there was the agency component, and then you spun it out into its own uh, independent company. There was also CXL Institute. So in the early days, it was successful by sort of vanity metrics, some might say of like just traffic e- exactly, and emails. Exactly. But, but eventually, you, you know, the monetization came later. Yeah, I mean, within one year, people, you know, in, in consulting space, who what works is personal expertise. Oh, this guy knows about CRO, I want to hire this guy. And so I started getting consulting requests. People wanted to hire me to optimize mm. their sites. 
And you know, then of course I needed a designer, I needed a developer, all these things, and so I put together an agency. And so it quickly evolved. Within one year, it evolved from a blog to an agency, which is still around now. It's called Spiro, and you know, it's one of the biggest of its kind, growing forty percent year over year. Yeah, that's amazing. Go, going back to the to the SaaS startup one more time, would you do anything differently knowing what you know now and also seeing sort of the success that you had with this approach with CXL? Or do you think that it was sort of just like, you know, wrong market, wrong time or wrong approach? I think I was a little ahead of the time. Or maybe I just, in in some ways I gave up too soon, but I also had, you know, you need to eat and, you know, pay the bills. So... Yeah. I started the same time as Udemy. In fact, like the year we started, Gagan Biani was, uh, I remember uh, running into him at South by Southwest when he was pitching in front of an audience, like there was whatever startup panel they had there. And so it was like, it was early, like he was funded and I was bootstrapped. And then he had the two-sided marketplace model, which I thought was smart. Because also the customers that did sign for us, sign up with us to, you know, build a course a lot of them built the course, but they had no audience to sell to. Like right. it was like, and then they gave up and they churned because they weren't making money. So I thought like, oh, a two-sided marketplace is a is a good idea. And back then, two thousand nine, ten, the ecosystem for like this, you know, tools of where you can just build and monetize like that wasn't there. Uh, it was coming. So in in a sense, yes, there is some regret that it gave up too soon. Well, of course, it's impossible to know whether it would have worked out because, I mean, it worked out another way. Right. And you would have probably had to wait for a lo quite a long time in order to start see the results. And it's interesting now that a lot of people do have an audience and it's much more well-established and it's a much larger market that sort of the opposite is happening where everyone's going off of Udemy or they're creating their own sort of platform, if you will. Totally. There's no need for the two-sided marketplace. And so time and place for everything, it seems. Exactly. And then now, of course, it's the opposite problem where because the barrier of entry is gone, it is so easy to build your own course. Anybody has access to nice quality cameras, lights are cheap, tech is cheap, everything is cheap. It means that everybody and their mother are selling ebooks now or courses or whatever it is. And it's actually even, it's, it's so easy to make money with ebooks that even developers, SaaS owners are selling ebooks on the sides because it's, Making money with ebooks is easier than with SaaS. Mm -hmm. It's like a sad reality, uh, and I think there's there's going to be a consolidation wave coming up because even though every creator has access to to build, there's still a distribution problem. Meaning that uh, you need to build your own audience, and some people are going to be more successful than others at it. There's just so much more noise out there. Yeah, and it's harder to compete in this space because. I mean, what, 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 what are you competing on if you have an online course? And I know firsthand because CXL is an e-learning company and moats is something I'm constantly thinking about. And so in e-learning, what do you compete on? Like what type of courses you do? Anybody can copy that. Who, who's your instructor? Oh, if it's not you, anybody can have the same instructors as you and so on and so forth. So. It's very little, like what, like depth of the course, do you do a longer course? Anybody can do a longer course than you and more in depth. And so, yeah, it's tricky. 
what what do you think are is is the moat for something like e-learning courses, sort of educational content? Does it simply kind of come down to uh, brand, or is it distribution and just sort of the advantages of how well you market and how how wide you cast your net? Mm-hmm. Well, brand for sure plays a huge role because it it just who has the best brand, you know, get you know brand just wins because ultimately the in in terms of course content. If, people, if you're Joe Schmo and nobody's ever heard of you and you have a kick-ass course, it's very hard to sell it. So I think some of the modes in e-learning besides your, your own personal brand, like if you're selling Corey Haynes' course and nobody can sell your course, right? It's like you have some unique knowledge that you possess. That can be your advantage. So like distribution for it, I don't know. Like you know, how niche you are depends on you. But if you look at, like say, Reforge, what Reforge has done... They've banked on knowledge that is not easily accessible, like you know the Silicon Valley heavy hitters, names you you, you might have heard of, right? Or that you know that Silicon Valley thing that if uh, if somebody in you know Wichita, Kansas starts a company like this and has no access to Silicon Valley masterminds, you can't replicate that. So there is a moat there, network, I guess, or mm-hmm. like Masterclass has a moat called money. You know, like, because, uh, you know, supposedly they pay their instructors $100,000 per course and up. Not everybody can replicate that. So right. so they, they have a moat there. So they can have names that other people cannot. So it's the same type of effect as, as what Reforge is doing. With CXL, we are obviously very mindful of what's going on. As I said, I'm always, been for years, I've been thinking about this. You know, you might have seen me on social talk about differentiation, and 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 it's because I started to solve my own problem. Where like about two years ago or three years ago now, I basically realized that this wave is happening, and what is our differentiation? It's you know, it's I can of course talk endlessly about our differentiation, but it's all subtle. It's very subtle differences, and if when we surveyed our own audience, like hey. So why are you like buying, buying from us? And maybe, maybe for, for around 30%, it was still a, a tied to my personal brand, which, you know, which is okay. And, you know, this is definitely defensible, but how sustainable is that? And of course, I'm a, not even a B level celebrity. I'm like a C or D level celebrity. So, I mean, in marketing, obviously there are no celebrities besides <laughs> Gary Vee and Seth Godin, you know, right? Everybody, yeah. So we're we're actually taking another pr- approach. We are uh, looking away from the red ocean, red ocean of courses, and we're 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 tapping into a blue ocean here. And of course, changing oceans is, doesn't happen overnight. But we're building something new, uh, a new approach that I've talked about as well, codenamed Adept. Just another take on what e-learning is, and so we're building towards a future. That is, and we're going to get them maybe three, I'm, I'm having a three to five year perspective in mind. Mm. So if I think about us, like we are, of course, we are highly profitable and growing very fast. But I'm thinking somebody, we are like Nokia in 2007. And unless we're going to revolutionize our own business model, we might find ourselves as a, in a shitty situation. So I'm revolutionizing our own business model before before the market does. Hmm. Well, you can afford to, right? Because I think what a lot of what happens to a lot of these big companies is that they 
get into this success and then they sort of push the boundaries and, and they build sort of like all this infrastructure that they then once they need to move, they can't, they're stuck. They're, they're too heavy. They're too, bul- too bulky. They, or sure, they can't yeah. even afford I mean, to. Changing minds is difficult. If you have a huge organization, you know, like getting consensus. I mean, you need a strong, strong leader, you know, and then I'm of course having the benefit that I am the leader. So I say this way and then right, there we right. go. So I don't need to convince. I mean, I do convince minds. I collaborate, synergize a lot of internal discussions, but ultimately, you know, the role of a CEO is to set the vision and then and make the team go a certain direction. So for sure. Yeah. And I also have that experimenters or optimizers mindset. So after 10 years of doing conversion optimization and running experiments, my mind is trained for not having holy cows, you know, like I'm, I'm ready mm-hmm. to change my mind. I'm ready to experiment. I'm ready to tinker always. Yeah. That is one of the, the hard parts of being a marketer is you're sort of always proving yourself wrong in a lot of ways of, oh, I have this great idea and I think it's going to work wonders. Just watch. And then it flops. Right. And so you kind of learn to mm-hmm. humble yourself and think, oh, this, this could work. It could not work. But I just want to find what actually does work. I just want to find the best variable. I want to find the best experiment. I want to get to the truth, essentially. Mm-hmm. And in, in the end, a strategy is also a hypothesis that you need to test. Obviously, the time span is different. It's not like a two-week experiment. So it's not like, oh, which value proposition captures more emails, which is easy and very low risk. Banking the success of the company on it. You know, like I'm banking mm-hmm. my own future on this. And for a strategy, I mean, you need to see it out for at least two years to really know whether it, it was the right call or not. So it is, it is a bigger game, but I think that is, also, that is also the role of a leader. You know, like you just need to, you need to have conviction and, and make some bets. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the, maybe one of the kind of industry tropes or cliches in marketing that a lot of people like myself even fight and kind of try to balance is this idea of like rapid experimentation versus like conviction and using your intuition. I think that, like you said, with a lot of experimentation, like maybe sometimes people will not give it enough time or they will maybe just not, you know, run like a full experiment. And you talk a lot about A-B testing and sort of the sample sizes that you need to actually run a fully fledged A-B test, but versus something like just based off of intuition and conviction where you can't really test it or, you know, or can you, it just takes a lot longer. How do you, how do you straddle that? Well, you, you gotta have faith, you know, like a rapid experimentation is, is very important, but that's on a very tactical level. You know, you can't rapid experiment with key thing. Let's say that I want to build my uh, whatever new agency, and the key strategy component to that is that I I need to position myself as the expert around this topic. So I'm gonna pull an April Dunford on myself, you know, like I'm gonna she owns positioning, I'm gonna own I don't know, good market strategy or like whatever. So that means that what needs to happen? I need a thousand articles on this. I need to rank for everything. I need to put in every podcast, every webinar. Like if you search about good marketing, you you have to find me. You know, like so that's the strategy. But in order to get there, I need to write down some pieces of content. I need to like speak in all those conferences, write a book. That's at least two years. I mean, two years is optimistic. You know, right. so before you pan out, that you know you can see whether 
going through my personal brand is a way to build a company. Like you need to first get there and see. I mean, these things take time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. I'm curious, you know, so now you have uh, CXL, Spiro, CXL Institute, which I guess they're probably, you know, CXL Institute and CXL are the same. Right. Yeah. We renamed it. Yeah. And now you have winter as well. As a marketer, I'm curious, like how does the marketing strategy for each one differ given that, especially that they have such different kind of sales models, right? Selling services, selling Mm -hmm. educational courses, SaaS mixed with kind of a productized service. How do you think through how the the marketing differs for each one? Because I know for me, I, I get bugged when people have like their playbook, right? They just like try to run the same thing over and over again across different industries and different types of businesses. But you obviously have a more tailor-made approach for each one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the, the pricing and, and, and who the target audience is, that the strategy is, is different. So Spiro serves mid market to large enterprises. And this is expensive, you know, like your minimum contract size is $250,000. Know, so that's not you know, that's a very long as sales cycle and all that stuff. So it, and in consulting, as I said, it revolves a lot around that personal brand. People buy consultants, you know, and not, not necessarily the companies they're with. And so personal brand building for the people inside a company is, a, is one of the cornerstones. Referrals is huge, you know, in, in big, expensive consulting. It's, it's most of our business is referrals. And of course, you need to facilitate that and you know t- design for that and all that stuff. For for CXL, it is predominantly driven by brand and, and SEO. So of course, ten years of blogging really helps. You know, because thousands of well, not thousand thousand plus articles, we rank for a lot of shit. We get a lot of SEO traffic. So I would say inbound marketing is the cornerstone of our or of our marketing strategy. And it really, really works. And then we have a mini brand. A mini brand, we have a loyal, passionate fan base, you know, our own Facebook group and our own conference. Well, like, skipped one year because of COVID, but probably going to have again end of this year. Uh, my personal brand. So brand, brand plus SEO is kind of the Airbnb playbook now, it turns out. And for winter, for winter, it's, it's, uh, for winter is now an early stage startup. So we are, what, eight months old or something? We launched in May, so actually almost a year now. So 10 months. Key thing for year one is raising awareness that we exist. Most important thing. Raising awareness that we exist. Of course, also, you know, product strategy and marketing strategy really go hand in hand because we already had a couple of pivots here. We changed the name. We changed the target positioning, target market. A lot of changes have happened already. So right now, the best thing that is going on for us is this a monthly event series called Winter Games. So I need to generate leads and build awareness. If I do an SEO strategy, which I'm also doing, but like it's, I got domain authority, what, 35 something, I won't rank for anything. So I can't capture, you know, email through SEO traffic. Don't have enough money to run pay-per-click. Or well, like, I mean, too early for that, let's say. And so started a virtual event series and it's getting more and more popular every every single month. So last one that we just did last week, got some, you know, 1600 leads and, you know, building awareness that we exist. So that is, that is my key focus. We're trying more educational, let's say web series in the pipeline coming out soon. 
Now that that's really working for us. And my personal brand is is huge for winter. So my my LinkedIn, my my Twitter, active daily. Uh, my my personal brand, my personal social media handle, drove our first one thousand signups before we even sent a single email about it. So it's definitely working. Well, that was a fascinating look into the marketing strategy for each one of the businesses. I'm also curious. So this is one of the questions uh, specifically about winter, but. What happens when there's conflicting advice or feedback about the copy on your website? Maybe that's, let's just say even hypothetically, there are two people that you highly respect and you know that they're both smart and maybe both are valid. Like how do you weigh each one and sift through to find sort of what you should do if there's conflicting piece of advice? Well, you evaluate what is what they're saying is accurate or not. So if, you know, if they're just telling you what to do, then you should ignore that. But if it's like, this is unclear to me, you should really evaluate it and see if, if you probably have a clarity. If somebody, if you're two people and one says it's clear and the other person says, I don't get it, I would, you know, go with the I don't get it side because it's like, okay, this mm. guy gets it, but this other one does not. Or, so basically, it really depends on what is the conflicting advice here. So if, if, if there's telling you different things what to do, you know, you have to make up your own decisions. But if they're commenting about, let's say, they're experiencing friction, then the goal is to eliminate all friction, or like you can't eliminate, minimize. Minimize all friction as much as possible. So... Yeah, did you have a specific example in mind or? No, I think that it's, it's more just uh, kind of the reality of asking for feedback and asking for feedback is a art in and of itself, right? But especially for when you're using a service like Winter, or if you, mm. even if you're just going to your friends or like you said, your advisors and just asking uh, for advice and there are maybe two conflicting pieces of advice. It's just sort of like one of those conundrums where it's, you know, you're not really sure what to do, right? There's no, there aren't a lot of content around that. It's not a lot of advice around it. So it's, it could even be as simple as like a headline. Someone likes a headline, someone doesn't like a headline. How, how do you know sort of what to make of that? Yeah, that, that's fine. Because in the end, the, what winter is, is winter gives you qualitative feedback. And mainly what you want to do is you want to understand the friction in the sales process. The goal is not to eliminate that everybody loves something or like actually polarization is good, you know, because if we just if you just make it smooth around the edges, you, you're optimizing for mediocrity, like and you end up with a non-offensive, completely boring headline that nobody cares about. I mean, it's the same thing with like with customer research. If you if you do user research or like market research and see what people want and what are the problems and then you just you know tailor your so optimize your product so it would solve the problems the users have you will end up just like everybody else on the market because all your competitors are solving the exact same problems so there is a lot of room for your personal point of view you need to believe something you need to stand for something and yes, in listening to the user is important, but if that's all you've got, um, you, you're going to be a really boring brand. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it was Seth Godin who said, if you want to make someone for everyone, 
make something really average and mediocre because that's ultimately what is going to appeal to the masses, right? And so exactly if you right. want to yeah. make something outstanding, it has to be niche and, and tailored for someone in particular. And then, you know, most market-leading companies or category-leading companies are boring. You know, like, let's take Toyota. It's like the most vanilla, boring-ass cars there are. <laughs> you know, like, and I, I, I listened to this interview with the, the chief designer of Toyota Camry, and he was describing how difficult actually it is to design a Camry because like, you know, if, if you're designing a Ferrari or a Lambo, it's like, oh, you, you can have your own vision and what's cool and so on. But the guy who drives a, a Camry or, or, or the girl, they don't want to stand out. They want something reliable and it doesn't need to be, can't be too edgy and, you know, like there's, there's, there's something to it. So, so people already want, some people want boring and safe and reliable. But the problem is that if you're a challenger brand and you do that, safe and boring and predictable, those people who are looking for that, they already have one. People who love Toyotas, they're going to stick with Toyotas. So if you release a new challenger car brand, I'm not sure you're going to take Toyota drivers away from it, you know, which is why something like Cybertruck is a good move because that's hella polarizing. People who want reliable trucks already have Ford F-150, right? So I think attacking on the, from the edges is the way to go if you're at the Challenger brand. Hmm. Yeah, that gets into a few other concepts that I'd love to get your take on because again, there are the kind of these amorphous ephemeral ideas like strategic messaging and positioning and differentiation. And we're kind of like touching around the edges of it right now, but especially they're really important concepts for copywriting, which is ultimately how you're expressing and communicating, you know, who you are, what you stand for, all these ideas we're talking about. What are the kind of frameworks and principles that you keep in mind when you're thinking about building a brand, differentiating and kind of building this strategic message and uh, it might even be helpful to kind of start with, you know, how do you think about what each of those are, in fact, if mm -hmm. we can define them? Mm -hmm. The way, I mean, I use, the, I like the word messaging, and the way I use it is like basically all the messages we send out about our company. And so in my mind, it starts from, it starts from your band, brand identity, something that some, you have a point of view, something that you stand for, the, you're about to right or wrong or, you know, you stand up for something, you know, you care about something, something is important to you. And from there on, you form positioning and positioning, you know, is which use case are you for, for which type of user, you know, so why are you, which very specific, you know, or well-defined categories, April Dunford says it, are you solving a particular problem for? And once you understand that, now you can in the message messaging hierarchy, strategic messaging is what is it that we say about ourselves? You have a big picture narrative, and then you have, let's say, your top three to five messages that you're sending out. So you should choose us because we're this and this is a problem and you know, like something that you're repeating over and over again. Because like in storytelling need to just repeat the same message until people are just so fucking sick of it, you know? Geico can save you, you know, 15% 15, 15 or more. We, we, we can recite their mantra. And it's, why does it work? Because of repetition, right? 
So it's the same thing. What are the key things that we want to constantly remind people of? And then finally, the, the, the final layer is, 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 is the copywriting, which is like, how exactly do we communicate these our five key ideas or however many, um, using us as many words as we want, you know? So we have all these pages, about pages and product pages, and then also maybe social media. So copywriting is, you know, just describing our key ideas that stem from brand and positioning. That's how I say mm. it. Yeah. And then how, how does that level back to, so for example, someone's wanting to get feedback on their copyright and their site through a service like Winter, for example. And then basically their, their job is, okay, how is the copywriting that we're putting out here reflect sort of the brand values and identity and uh, strategic mm -hmm. messaging that we're intending to put out there? Is that how you should think about it? Yeah. So two things. So there's a big concept that I believe in, which is called message market fit. So before you can have product market fit, which is like whether the product solves a customer pain and you know they want to keep on paying for it, they see that they get the value out of it. Before they even experience the product, their messaging comes first that there's a promise, there, there's a message that clicks with the users like, ah, oh, yes, I want that. That's what I want. And so they would sign up for the product to begin with. So if the messaging does not resonate you're on, your, on your website, landing page, on your ad copy, you know, they won't even ever experience your product. So obviously your product needs to you know, <laughs> do what, it, what, it, what you're promising it does. Otherwise, there's no business. But messaging comes first. So, so first thing you can do with Winter is you, you check whether what you're saying is actually resonating with people. Do they give a rat's ass about what you're saying? And you're usually saying lots of things about yourself. You know, any company can probably list five to ten good arguments why you use us, you know. And well, like, what, which of these arguments that you're making actually matters? What, what is something that they actually care about? What is maybe new and noteworthy? Because, like, what they haven't heard, you know, because, like, let's say we're building a next email marketing tool. And we say, hey, you can track open rates and click-through rates. And that messaging is not going to go anywhere because that's not an exciting message. Like, oh, duh, obviously you, you can track these things. So you need to say something new and interesting. Novelty effect is needed. So that's one thing. You're testing messaging resonance, whether the idea that you're saying is like, oh, that's cool. I want to hear more. I'm like nodding. Yes, tell me more. Just today... I was, I'm seeing messaging by this HR software called Rippling. And I hear HR software, I'm already yawning. It's so fucking boring. Like, who cares about HR software? And then they start talking about problems that I actually have, which is like, when you onboard new employees, they immediately get access to all the shared tools, you know, your Figma or, you know, Google Docs and whatever, whatever. And, and they ship out laptops to them. I was like, holy shit, we do all that stuff manually right now. We you know, buy the whatever, the MacBook Pro, and where is your address, and then we ship them, you know, like, it's like, so those two ideas really resonated with, oh, you send the laptop, and they immediately get access to all the shared tools. So, and they, they, they're an HR software, but those two messages is, if those resonate with me, I can test that with Winter. Now I put it in my ads and call the email and whatever, whatever. Second thing is that understand friction in your copywriting. So on your website, you have a lot of stuff. 
So what is something that is actually what something that you're saying might be actually turning people off? And I see this all the time. So as an example, there was an agency that said, started off with a headline, we're an agency that moves fast and breaks things, all right, and wanting to appeal to SaaS companies. The headline actually completely falls flat because people are like, I don't want my agency to break my things. So right off the bat, right. selling is so hard. And you think you're, uh, you have a cool, sexy headline and you put it all over your ads and so on. And actually people are like, no, don't want that. So if your headline right off the bat creates friction and the goal of the headline is to actually lure them in, oh, tell me more, right? So it's, you're already making it more difficult. I mean, a bad headline doesn't kill the deal necessarily, but it sure isn't helping. You know, like, it's like unnecessary friction in the sales process. So you'll learn about things like this, or you will learn things about, so another example is like, oh, we're a performance marketing uh, agency. Okay, great. And so you're, again, people you're selling to say, so if it's paper performance, why are you asking for money? Thinking that performance marketing means pay per performance, which it does not, but it just goes to right. show you that ter terminology is not universally understood. It's not like a dictionary definition of what performance marketing is. I did a Twitter, mm -hmm. I did a Twitter, not like, not like a poll, but I asked, hey, how, how do you understand performance marketing? And I got like 40 different definitions. It's one of those things where everybody has their own idea of what something means. And you might even not know that you have this problem because you are so close to your own business and you have a firm belief that what, what something is, you know? And, right. and another thing that you discover is that, and I see this a lot with B2B SaaS sites, is that you have, a, you have some copy, usually not very much, you know, like a screenshot and then a generic, you know, subheading or whatever. The people read everything and they still don't get it. It's like, no idea. And so these are these blind spots. So you have a lot of blind spots because you, again, are so close to your own product. You know how everything about it. So you don't need, you don't think it needs a lot of words to explain. Actually, it probably does. So if somebody mm. reads everything and they still don't understand, they still have questions, you have a problem. So again, winter, yeah. winter will reveal these blind spots for you. How does kind of the stages of awareness play into this whole idea of trying to meet people where they are, understand where they're coming from, what they already know about you or, you know, your category, your market, all the assumptions that kind of come along with that. Is that something that people should be thinking about from the start or that you kind of work out at the end? But, you know, in other words, should that be a part of the process of creating the copy in the first place or can you worry about that later? Well, you need on your website, you need ways for people to, like most people on the site are either logging in, familiar client, let's say it's a SaaS tool, then they're logging in, or they are checking it out. Like, what is this place? You know, if you're an agency site, there are no clients logging in anywhere. So it's mostly people checking it out. So for the most part, you should optimize for this person doesn't know very much, and this person is here to check us out. However, you should have shortcut links for, like, if here to log in, they click log in, right? Or there are, let's say, shortcuts to more pages deeper pages that assume a certain level of knowledge. But for the most part, you should assume that they don't know anything to convert more customers. In, in Winter's case, we advocate that people don't include panels when they're doing message testing, that they, they invite people who have never heard of them before. Because those people, hmm. again, when you're trying to understand, 
the clarity of your messaging or uh, your content gaps on your website, like the blind spots, people who already know what your tool does, they don't need to, you know, they don't need all the information. They already know. So they don't have those questions. So people who are unfamiliar with your brand, they will read it and say, well, how does it exactly work? I don't get it. So that's what you want. Hmm. I think that's probably one of the downfalls of asking your friends for advice, right? Is that they might already have all the context needed and they already know kind of how you're thinking about it. They've heard it, you know, a thousand different ways. Whereas complete strangers can actually give you objective advice to help. Exactly right. Yeah. Same goes for like user testing. If you're testing your app usability or whatever, Whereas there's a, you know, even if your software is hard to use and clunky to use, your users will eventually learn all the quirks about your thing and they'll be able to use it. And maybe they don't even mind after, after some period of time, but new users are struggling. So mm. you always, you know, a fresh pair of eyes, you know, helps tremendously. Yeah. What, what's your take on kind of AI copywriting and GTP3? And we've been seeing some trends right now. This is going to date the podcast a little bit right now for, for the future. But I think it'll be a trend for the next couple of years. Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? Do you think that there's kind of a real workflow? Is there something to be you know scared about or excited about? I mean, overall technology, I think, is exciting. So, I mean, I've seen copy.ai and conversion.ai. So the limitations currently are that that the algorithm has no clue what it's saying. You know, it is not contextually, contextually understanding anything. So it is, it is just spraying out patterns without understanding anything about its content. So, so in that sense, I am deeply skeptical. And you can't tell the algorithm, like, please make this more clear. And if you look at some of these examples of what it's spitting out, it is cheesy as hell, and I would never put that copy anywhere on my website. You know? So, I mean, it is impressive that it, the algorithm can put together coherent messages. You know, that's very impressive. So, down the line, as this, because this technology is in its infancy, right? I think the future is very exciting, and copywriters do need to worry about it. So, especially, I mean, in every, every field, there's, you know, there's the top experts and there's the commodity experts. The top experts never need to worry about anything. You know, there, there are always companies who want the best, hire the best. So, but if you're one of those, you know, let's say an upward copywriter and you get paid by, you know, whatever cents per word, whatever the, you know, you should be really very worried. So I think all, as with any automation, the bottom, bottom 30% of service providers will be eliminated by algorithms. Same is for like warehouses, you know, like robots will be able to put packages on shelves. Thank you very much. No humans needed. So the, the first level when a human is needed, it just will require a higher level of expertise. Currently, I mean, I, I don't know how many copywriting Facebook groups and so on you are part of, but like just out of pure professional curiosity, I'm, I'm part of many that have tens of thousands of uh, people. And you see the level of questions they ask. There's, a, I mean, there's always noobs to anything. They're the, the biggest portion of any 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 group. So there's a lot of hungry, starving copywriters out there. I mean, not literally starving, but you know, starving for clients. Right. You know. Yeah. And yeah. and and I don't know how many copywriters you've hired. I've hired so many, and when they send me sample works, most of it is just utter garbage. It's so bad. 
and I'd be I'd be glad to replace all those people with 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 an algorithm. Um, hmm. Yet, you know, Joanna Weebs of the of the future will have still a lot of work because you know the algorithm doesn't know what the fuck it's saying. Right, right. Yeah, I, personally, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it because I think that it'll remove a lot of the grunt work and sort of democratize access, but it'll actually create more hunger and appetite for expertise and people who can take what you know an algorithm or sort of a computer generates and turn it into something more useful yeah, or yeah, better yeah, or more sure. contextual. I see copywriters talking about it and they're like, there are, of course, conf- confirmation bias is, is heavy with them. So whenever they find a flaw, they're like really take a lot of glee and joy out of, see these algorithms want our jobs. <laughs> and I, I've seen this video, maybe you have as well, where they interview warehouse workers, whether robots will be able to do what they're doing. And they're like, no way, man. And like they describe all the things that they're doing that the robots can't do. And then the part two of the video is showing robots doing everything that they're doing. So it, it's the same thing. I mean, half the copyrighted jobs are going to be gone. That's, that's for sure. Yeah, it, you have to learn to see past your own confirmation bias and actually be sort of objective about it. Totally, inconvenient truth. But I, it's, I think for the humanity, this is good news because like, we don't want to waste human talent on this basic stuff. Same with like digital analytics, you know, like where a computer is able to go through, you know, so much data in seconds where it would take humans weeks. Like why would we humans want to even de- deal with this? Let's work together with the machines, you know? So overall, mm-hmm. I think it's a net win. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about CRO, given that that was sort of part of your origin story. Yeah. And so you are one of the experts in this field talking about expertise. Let's say that I'm a content marketer and I want to level up my CRO skills and I want to learn some conversion rate optimization, kind of basics or best practices. What would you advise them or kind of walk them through? Like where to find this information or what the best practices are? Yeah, like what the best practices are, like what you would uh, advise them to do. Well, for reading content, obviously you start with CXL blog. It has everything in there. But conversion optimization is really helping use helping the user. And I think that's of course, seems to be the answer for everything. What's SEO? Oh, it's like serve user the content that is helpful to them. You know? Right. So conversion optimization is the same thing where you imagine on every single page where you want the user to do something, first of all, optimize for that action. So if you want some, somebody to click a button, make that button prominent. And in prominence, there you have size to play with, so and placement, like where in the real estate? Do they need to scroll you know, a ton to find that button, or is it like easily visible above the folds? So that really matters how easy how findable that thing is that you want people to interact with, or if, if you want them to read something. So just real estate, real estate matters. And then obviously then there's usability. So how, how is it presented? How much clutter is there going on? How many competing elements are there? So if you want people to read this one message, why do you even have this other stuff on the page? Pro- typical thing, problems with home pages on websites are like, well, first of all, think, figure out what is the number one goal for your homepage, okay? Once you've figured it out, like, what elements on your website, on the page, are contributing to people taking that desired action? 
and what's not related. If you have blog posts on it, but actually want people to sign up, you should do away with the blog post because it's, it's a distraction. So more focus, less random stuff. If, if your blog is there for SEO purposes, you shouldn't have it anywhere. Like they will just land on it directly through search. So things like that. So focus, what is it that you want? And then give users tools and information and the design support to facilitate that, that action. You know? hmm. and, and with sales copy, it's like, what's in it for me? And again, it's user-centric. Like, tell you why, why they should want that. The opposite is me-centric. We think and we believe and we want and, yeah. So if you keep these principles in mind, you're already halfway there. Hmm. That's been my experience a little bit. I'm curious what your take is on this kind of worldview of mine is that most of CRO is sort of best practices and things that you can implement without really any uh, data or A-B testing per se to sort of back it up. You just know that these are things that have been proven over time and there are patterns that are that are good and useful and more principle driven. And then sort of the the last 20% maybe is like the the very data driven at scale you know, making these minor tweaks based off of the best practices that you've implemented before. Is that your experience or, or do you have a different view? Well, I don't consider best practices as optimization because best practices is basically where you start. So if you have a you hmm. know, low traffic website, a new business, you absolutely start with best. That's your first implementation of everything is a best practice. You know, like if you have, if you have a legion form, don't ask any more information than you absolutely have to. Like, make it easier to fill out this form. Things like that. But it's not optimization. So optimization is taking something and improving it. So that, that means that you are measuring the performance and you are gathering information on possible friction. You know, like, you do either qualitative or quantitative research to understand what the problems are. Because a best practice does not come with a guarantee that it will work for you. There's always a chance that in your case, something else is better. And you don't, you don't know that until you gather information. And obviously, as, as businesses get larger, once we get, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of users or millions of dollars of revenue per month, now you have a lot of quant data available and small optimizations will be a lot of business. You know, like if you can improve the conversion rate of Amazon.com by 1%, I guarantee they make, you know, Millions and millions and millions of dollars. So small optimizations matter. If you're a company, if you're a you know you have a website that has less than one thousand signups or purchases per month, uh, the value of tinkering with the small stuff is highly questionable. So you're probably better off on doing other stuff. Start with best practices and then focus on traffic. Focus on marketing, mm. bringing people to the site, and qualitative research. Because, like, again, if you have less than 1,000 signups per month, you don't have a lot of quant data. You can't make a lot of quanti data driven optimizations. A B testing is out of the question, but you can do user interviews, you can do user testing, you can do message testing, things like that. Yeah. Then, what about the more advanced stuff, the CRO practices or examples, case studies that most people? wouldn't know or, or maybe wouldn't even sort of be aware of. What are the cutting edge strategies or tactics that you're seeing have worked that maybe the, most of us probably wouldn't know? Mm -hmm. Well, at the top of the game, there is nobody goes off of best practices or a tactic they read off of a blog post. Doesn't doesn't work that way. 
So everything at the highest level is all research-based. So you're always measuring and gathering data, qualitative and quantitative, and you're identifying problems. You're identifying problems. And all the experiments that you run are hypotheses to improve or solve a problem. So the problem might be that not enough people are adding products to the cart on their e-commerce product page. It's an identified uh, problem. And so then you might be, well, what's holding people back from clicking that add, add to cart button? So and then you, you, you start with that business question. What's be holding people back? And you can do polls, you can do surveys, you can call people up, you can do lots of things. You can watch videos on how people interact with the page. And based on that data, start getting um, insights into why is that happening, what's, what's holding people back. And based on those insights, you formulate a hypothesis. If we more product information and better pictures, more people will add product to the cart because right now what's holding them back is that the pictures are not good enough, the, the product details are vague, things like that. So it's all it's all research driven. I always like to say that in conversion optimization, it's 80% of the results come from research. It's 80% research, 20% experimentation, like where you actually, nothing gets shipped live by just changing something. Everything is shipped as an experiment. New product features, changes on the website, and obviously all, all of that requires certain levels of traffic. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. I mean, maybe just even for my own kind of reiteration, helping me drill it into my mind is that you you said that at the top of the game, it's all research driven because you have to essentially come up with the new cutting edge strategies and tactics, right? There's no one else that's going to teach you or show you, or you know, if you are on the cutting edge, then you are coming up with the, the, the bleeding edge things by yourself through some sort of research totally. or I mean, there is, there is Whereas, uh, a case for inspiration as well. Like you go to swipe files and so on, but it still starts from understanding that you have a particular problem that you're trying to solve. Let's say people on the pricing page don't get it. They don't understand how your pricing works. Maybe you have complicated pricing. So even if you understand what the problem is, the solution is not obvious. You know, and that most teams spend a lot of time thinking about what is a hypothesis for a solution. And so inspiration, like swipe files, like this company solves it like this, is, can inform a test hypothesis. But they are never randomly testing their pricing page. They always come with, like, this is a pr problem and we just need ideas for solutions because, I mean, if we knew what's going to work, we wouldn't need to experiment. But nobody knows. So... So we formulate right. multiple different ide ideas and then test those. Yeah, yeah. There's, I'm curious to get your take on sort of how to actually go about experimenting. And I know you have some interesting thoughts on sort of technical ability for marketers. Now we have sort of this whole no-code movement. I'll read you this tweet really quick and then I'll have you unpack it a bit. But you said, you can't be a serious digital marketing practitioner if you're not technical. This was back in 2018, by the way. So I'm curious to get your take on this now that's a little bit more modern. And you said, instead of running away from coding, machine learning, working with APIs and CDPs, you should embrace it. When you don't get something, quote unquote, at first, it's time to get curious instead of becoming afraid. So I'm curious, you know, if that's changed and or 
how that applies given all the tools and no code software oh, available today. Just maybe the barriers of entry to some of those technologies has have come down. So we we talked about the AI copywriting and AI and machine learning coming to all aspects of marketing. So you still need to embrace it, understand how it works, what it can do, what it's good at or not, and where you, a human, where do you fit in, and then how do you make the most of this? Like if CDP as a technology is available, and like, ooh, I don't know, scary, sounds like I hate acronyms. I mean, you're just going to be, you know, going to fall behind. <laughs> I mean, you need to like, I don't understand it, scary acronym. Yes, tell me more. And you need to spend the next couple of weeks learning about it. Hmm. So with no code and you know experiments, the, the the key optimizations that you can now do is with no code you can get something that's working, let's say eighty twenty out really fast. And you might you still need developers to to build the real thing down the line that is scalable and has a nice user experience and all that stuff. But for validation. It's it's so good. So at winter, you know, before we pivoted to from consumer panels to B2B panels, we wanted to, before making that leap, we wanted to validate whether A, we are able to deliver B2B panels well, and whether people we wanted to validate whether people are ready to pay for it, because it costs more money, and whether it's actually useful whether people actually get useful insights and do something with it. So the only thing that we did was that we tried to recruit, we recruited some people that, hey, you want to earn some money by being, uh, you know, answering surveys. So we built the initial list of panelists. And maybe it was in the beginning, it was like 100 people. And then we recruited, hey, would you like message testing for your website? And if you sell to SaaS marketers, we can bring you SaaS marketers. So we found somebody who wanted that. And then we put up a type form survey. It's like, hey, here, describe your who you want, what's your website, who's your target audience, and there's a type form has a credit card payment thing also inside. And we take took money. And then those people who were in a panel, we send them links to whoever's website by hand. Here, these are the research questions we have about this website. Please answer them. Fill out the survey. And like, it was a lot of manual work by hand Nothing was automated. We gathered the data and then from spreadsheets, we put them into a, like a nice visualization, visualizing the results, and then showed them to the client. It's like, hey, do you like this? Is this useful? What else would you like to see? And obviously, it's not scalable. So my principle now is that I only bring in developers to scale something. But we absolutely need to validate whether it's useful whether people want to pay for it before by hand and it is manual and it doesn't scale and that's fine. And so maybe 10 years ago, that was not possible, you know, like, you know, that to get a first version of something like, yeah, you needed quite a bit of developer help or like, of course, smoke tests have been around since forever. I mean, I was, I was reading about doing smoke tests in the mid 2000s. I think this infomarketers, you know, the people who sell you, you know, Ferraris mm -hmm. and the dream. Those guys have been ahead of the game in many aspects. You know, same as long time direct mail testing was like the father of A-B testing. You know, like all these sneaky, sneaky people trying to make a buck. They're, they're kind of ahead of the game. And also audience first, these principles. 
like all this Frank Kern type of people were doing this in 2007 and 8. Brian Dice, you know, building email lists, audience for building brands. Even though, like, I'm so, oof, I don't like any of that stuff. But, like, I respect it in some, some aspects of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. What what about a big marketing related opinion that you've changed your mind on? Is anything come to mind? If not, I can read you one. That uh, you well, one thing in the tweet. that uh, comes to mind is that when I started out as a marketer, I was a very classic performance marketer. Everything measurable, everything analytics driven. We measure or it didn't happen, and so I called bullshit on all things brand and social media. I was not even active on social for years. I didn't give a shit. I was measuring an email, capture and focusing on email because I could measure the impact right away. I send an email, I get this much money. And, you know, and all my CRO career there. But now that I've, over the, over the last five years, as, as my organization has grown and I am less hands-on specialist and I'm seeing, you know, let's say I'm, I have a more senior role and there's a have a different yeah, role in the organization, strategic role. Now I am all about the brand. And I am a huge believer mm. in brand. And I think, in fact, brand is much more important than your tinkering. It's, it's fine if we don't measure all the shit. So I think brand is, is, is more important than measuring every little thing. Hmm. Is that because you think that people will act and you will have success maybe despite some of the mistakes or you know low-hanging fruit or things that could be optimized or what what is it about the brand that um, is so important yeah i think it has to do with just competition and competing in the market it's just the brand is is a moat that anybody can have whereas some of the moats that are available to companies are just only the really huge companies have those like network effects and switching costs and all those things are like, or like, or innovation, you know, like it's, you got to have a lot of money to play those games and have those modes, patterns and, you know, shit like that. But brand is, is, is something a small business can have. I mean, obviously you can make a much bigger band, brand with much more money. That money still makes the world go around, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a reason for, to, it's how you, how you can win sustainably. And and I had three small businesses, you know, each under a hundred employees. So I can see a uh, brand has helped me a lot. And I, the companies we work with, I see how much brand, how helpful is brand. And now, you know, last week, what Airbnb said about their 2020, where they turned off their marketing and 95% of the results were still there. There's <laughs> the power of brand. And SEO. So yeah, and even if you don't measure everything, it's the effects are still there, you know. And I we talked about the small optimizations and big optimizations. When you're small, like the, you can't really do small optimizations anyway. I mean, yes, I mean you could be doing terrible shit and you don't even know it. It's true. I'm not saying don't measure. That's that's the wrong message. I'm saying brand is very very important. Right. And the eyeballing stuff in terms of measurement is often good enough. Hmm. Yeah. When you look back on the thread of your career, what's kind of the, the common themes, common denominators that have gotten you to where you are today and kind of held everything together? Well, it's marketing. 
marketing is the, is the common thread. And then the experimentation. I've tinkered with a lot of stuff. I've uh, tried a lot of stuff and also failed a lot. Luckily, more, more wins than losses. And I'm, you know, we talked in the beginning that I consider myself as very entrepreneurial. So I am always bringing new stuff out and not, not afraid to try, not afraid to try. So that's kind of like the sum of common thread. Not, not afraid to reinvent myself. Yeah, yeah. Two final questions for you. What's something that you bought recently? And could you walk me through the experience of how you discovered it, why you bought it, and what you use it for? Mm-hmm. Well, I do a lot of podcasts and webinars and uh, my either my own or I'm a guest at somebody else's show. And so some of those videos get posted on the internet. <laughs> and then when I watch the recordings of those, I'm like, oof, actually, that's that looks suboptimal. You know, and so I changed the room I'm in because I used to be in this small, really well insulated call box. But then I looked at my videos of those rooms. Was like, yeah, it's not a nice backdrop because I, I need like you need more depth. I mean, this is not even this is not optimal, but it's better than what I had. But then I realized lighting is an issue, so that's how I came to know that that's the problem. And we have an in-house studio here at CXL. We film courses. So we have all kinds of lighting, but this like big and bulky and like I don't I don't wanna. So then I in my research found this Loom Cube, which is a yeah Loom Cube. It's really really nifty and it's really easy to use and it plugs into your whatever and it's light in your eyes that doesn't blind you. And I also feel like an Instagram, uh, you know, influencer now. And it's once I found it, and it you can, with a suction cup, you can attach it to your laptop and so on. So very easy, and it's enough low tech. So that's that's I think it was like hundred bucks or something. So bought it from Amazon, like like I buy everything. Did you did you search directly through Amazon, or did you Google you know best backlight for a computer for Zoom calls, or how was the, what was the first place that you found it? Yeah, I went I went to Google and I read some maybe three or four blog posts looking at different options, and then I went to Amazon and lo- read some reviews. It was it was the whole process was fairly quick, maybe. Hmm. Maybe twenty minutes, fifteen minutes. It's crazy, right? That's the the modern day experience. And what what was the yeah. ultimate thing that got you to buy it over the hundreds of other you know competitors or alternatives for this light? Two things. One is the size. It's very compact. It's very small. It's like most lights are huge, and I, I don't, I didn't want a huge tripod on my desk or like a huge ass thing. And I also wanted something that's fairly easy to, you know, use, so not too advanced. Just on and off buttons. That's that's all I care about. Right. Yeah. So. No switchboard needed. No no external. You know. No re- remote or anything like that. It's just on and off. Plug in. Plug out. Yeah. I mean, I can change color <laughs> temperature and shit like that. But yeah. It's, yeah. It's very fairly basic. Yeah. Cool. Well, last question for you. I'd love to get a peek inside of your swipe file per se, and get an idea of some marketing examples or campaigns that you thought were worthy of saving or just, you know, even just memorable. Could you walk me through a few of those and what stands out to you about them? So a while ago, I did message testing for this um, company called Lambda School. So Lambda School that was uh, was this website that got a perfect score on winter. It's like people just love their copy. There was not a single doubt, not a single hesitation and so on. And if you start reading the Lambda School, 
So first of all, it's super thorough. But the main thing is that the value proposition. The value proposition, which is like where the school that invests in you, meaning that you don't pay until you get a job. They train you in uh, mm. software development skills. So as they say, you know, the, there's this saying called, there's no boring way to say that you won the lottery. It's, it's a similar way that as soon as they nail an offer, which is like, we're going to teach you skills and you don't pay until you get mm. a job. That's so compelling, you know, like, and people eat it up. So I'm always sending people to a lot of school to, to, to see what a, what a good, um, good copywriting looks like. Also, they're like doing other things really well. Overloading the proof, they have screens, screens full of tweets, you know, Twitter embeds, and Twitter embeds are far more credible source of this testimonial than just a, a picture testimonial because it looks more authentic, right? I can click right. on it, I can go to this person's Twitter profile, maybe even DM this person. Whereas if it's just you know Mary twenty seven says I like it, like did you just make that up? And another thing is that they have is huge list of logos of companies who've hired graduates and this is like you show a great company one. show like oh these five customer logos they have like a hundred or it seems that way anyway so yeah lambda school for copy uh, and another example i would say is there's this particular thing i like about black rifle coffee i, I talk about black rifle coffee a lot because of their uh, how they they compete on messaging. It's a commodity product. They sell coffee beans, which is as commodity as it gets. And they compete in messaging and do a fine job at it. But what I love about BlackRifleCoffee.com website is that slider they have for finding the right beans. So you start from light roast to very dark roast, and then you can slide through it. It's a nifty usability thing. I don't resonate with their messaging at all. I am not... I am not Progun and so on, but I bought their coffee. So, because you thought the the slider was good, and you just like the overall brand and sort of the message that they're, you think it's very clear. It's it's yeah, I think it's pretty clear. Also, I was looking for super dark roast coffee because my wife likes coffee, uh. but she cannot take the caffeine. But she likes a little bit. So the darker the coffee, the less caffeine the beans have. So I wanted, right. and they had this particular of beans, you know extra roast so i was like eh, i want that <laughs> that's amazing i love it any other examples that come top of mind for you and then there's uh, there's this website myleon.co that used to have this really ballsy headline that really stuck with me which was something like most of your employees hate their job which is something that just grabs you you know it's a classic classic operating wisdom that you want to create an emotion in people you know, lead with emotion. Although now checking out the website now, it looks like they've moved away from that headline. I, I do suspect that it's because they tested it because they, uh, they looks like they haven't even launched yet. It's like get early access. So if you have an edgy headline, something like your most your employees hate their job, it's gonna ruffle some feathers, you know, which is actually what you want. Mm. It's going to turn some people off. It's going to repel some people. And by in turn, it's going to attract the other kind of people. But it's very easy to criticize it. And so it's easy to smooth out the edges. And then you become the average and say factual, boring things. So, yeah. So, so that's a tough one. It goes point. back to the 
the, the polarization we were talking about earlier, where it, it should be polarizing, potentially too polarizing. You know, there's, there's probably a line there For sure. somewhere, but it's a great example nonetheless of how to really think outside the box. Exactly. I don't know much about this company and I'm not, I don't, I'm not even sure what they do. I just remember how that, that headline was just like, Boosh! I noticed, I paused, took a picture, you know, basically maybe told, told a friend, like, look at this. So yeah, not many headlines do that. I know that, that that's a big one. Well, those are great examples. I'm going to have the link to the, the the web archive Wayback Machine screenshot of myleon.co for, for anyone interested and in, as well as Black Rifle Coffee and Lambda School. But appreciate you coming on and sharing everything. It's been a, a wealth of wisdom. Thank you, Corey. And uh, thanks for your time. Thanks again to Pep for joining me. And if you can, pop on Twitter and thank him for sharing everything and let him know what you thought as well. So to wrap up, here are a couple of my takeaways. Getting feedback is an incredibly hard but important part of doing marketing. But getting feedback from friends and even experts sometimes can be misleading because they might overlook some of the things that won't make sense to a complete stranger. So it's best to assume the least and get feedback from people who know very little about you. Also, the smaller you are, the bigger your optimizations and changes should be. When you don't have a lot of traffic, conversion optimization isn't going to make a big difference for you. But the bigger you are, inevitably, the smaller your optimizations are going to get because small changes compound into big results when you're working with large numbers. And finally, brand is the ultimate moat. If you have no differentiator or unique capability, you're going to have a hard time and should probably focus on building that differentiation. But even if you do have a killer feature or a moat, it probably won't last forever. But brand affinity can last forever and it's the best moat out there. And the good news is that anyone and anything can build a strong brand. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.